Hey, good morning. I am excited, excited to be here. I've been out the last two Sundays, so of course I'm excited to be back just to be back with you guys, but also it is the Christmas season, and I absolutely love Christmas. Being in India as we went from Thanksgiving to Christmas, it was really weird. Like, we kind of forgot that we were entering into Christmas, and then we, we landed in Houston, and there were Christmas decorations everywhere, and it was like, ah, I don't, I mean, if you look at my wife's social media feed for the last couple of years, you'll see some picture posted around the day of Thanksgiving or the day after of me with some silly, stupid look on my face, and it's the look that comes the first time I hear Christmas music, Christmas music on the radio, because I know, like, it's Christmas time, and so I have always loved Christmas, you know, growing up, it's much of the tradition and the family and the presents, but of course... Thankfully, as I've grown older and grown deeper in my understandings, there are different reasons to love Christmas. And being in the Advent season, I just, I, I love it. it is because it is such the right thing to think about and focus on as we think about as we move towards Christmas Day, which is when we celebrate the coming of our Messiah. That's why we celebrate Advent. The word Advent itself is the word to come. And so it's looking forward with anticipation of the day, the moment that life and light and hope entered into the world. So it's just so great. Last week, we looked at the theme of the comfort that comes in the arrival of the Messiah. And then this week, we're looking at preparation, as you already heard, and what it is to live in a way that is preparing for, as, as we look forward to, to, to prepare for the coming of the Messiah then and then now as we live in, this, in, the, in the season of life and history that he has come, now we live in this sense of preparation of the second coming when all is fulfilled, all promise is fulfilled, and all, all life is made whole, and all of God's judgment is complete. So I love Christmas. I love being here. I love seeing faces I know and don't know and knowing that we get to come together and celebrate that together. We get to come together and come to his word and hear the richness of his truth for you and for me today and in this season. So I couldn't go any further without saying that. And, and as we think about why we do these candles, I love the kind of the picture that we get as we light a candle each week, even though we don't do it in dark, we still see the symbolism that as we move towards the arrival of the Messiah, it, each time we light a candle, it's introducing more light into this room. And so as we move to the coming of the Messiah, when full light comes into this world, that's what we're doing as we light these candles. We are moving towards the coming of the Messiah, the coming of light and life. So very, very cool. Hope you're there with me. Let me pray for us before we go any further, okay? Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for the, the time and the place to come together this morning just as we are. Lord, to come before you, Lord, as you are. And I pray right now, Lord, that our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears are open, Lord, beyond the natural, beyond just simply the words that are spoken and the things that we see. But, Lord, that your spirit working in us speaks to our hearts, Lord, transforms our minds, Lord, for your purpose, for your glory, God, and for the work that you have for us. So God, we give you this time. We I pray that it would be an offering that would be pleasing to you. Lord, that each of us, Lord, no, no matter what our, 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 our understanding is, no matter what our history is, no matter what we come into in, into this place today, whatever baggage or, or, what it, or whatever it is, God, Lord, that we would just submit, Lord, just our lives, our understandings to you, Lord, that you would penetrate, you would break through and bring freedom, the promised freedom that is in Jesus, the Messiah, the promised freedom that is to be lived out every day, and the promised freedom that will be fulfilled completely on the day of Christ Jesus when he returns. 
So, Lord, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, go ahead. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah 40. We're going to continue there. Uh, Nori kicked us off last week in that chapter. Uh, you can, of course, turn your Bibles, turn on your, turn your apps if you have them on your phones or iPads or any other tablet. That, that they don't matter, just the Apple ones do. Um, if you don't have either one of those, you can use a Bible that's underneath a chair near you. It's on page 508. Sorry, Andy, I looked it up myself. Andy's been answering that question for a while. Um, and if you don't have a Bible or anything, please feel free to take that one with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you. So Isaiah 40, camp out there. We'll come to it in a little bit, okay? So I look at this, and, and as I was studying through it and kind of my time away and in this past week, I really got a little sad that Nori got to teach last week. He, he, I, I'm, I haven't actually been able to listen to it yet. I heard he did a great job. I'm going to listen to it tomorrow. Can't wait. But it's just such a rich text. It's so good. And I was like, God, I want to be teaching that. And so, so wherever Nori is, where's Nori? I'm, gonna, I'm glad you taught it, but I wish I could have. So I know you did a good job. Um, but why do I love this text? And I, I love this text because chapter 40 kind of brings us into this section of the next eight chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 48. And as we come to this this section of, of Isaiah, really what we're seeing is, is the, an answer to the questions that would have come to the people of Israel's mind, hearts and minds as they thought about what has been prophesied in the previous 39 chapters as we read it. It wasn't 39 chapters to them. It was just Isaiah's prophecies and writings. But as we read it, I mean, there's just lots of judgment and heaviness. And you get little glimpses of hope and a little glimpses of promise. But overall, the overall theme has just been this, this, this weight, this, this doomsday. Like, hey, guys, it's going to get really, really harsh on you coming up. And it's because you did bad and you're going to experience the consequence. That's just been the overall message. You've been disobedient. You've placed your trust in other things. So you, you're going to get what's coming. It's kind of what they've been told. So... But these, these chapters that we're coming into, that chapter 40 kind of sets the stage for, it's, it's, it's Isaiah and his, his supernaturally empowered prophecy being able to foresee and understand and speak answers to these questions. With all that's happening, thinking about these questions, and we, we come to the Old Testament sometimes, and we think that it's maybe not relevant. That's why I love this chapter, because the questions that they're asking are the questions that you and I ask today. The questions they're asking, the ones that we are faced with. Remember who these people are. The, these are the questions they're asking. Can God really be who he says he is? And can we really be who God says we are? That's the questions they're asking. Why are they asking that? They just heard all of this, this, this word of judgment coming upon them, but yet they also know that these promises stand. We see what we would call the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 2, 12, 2, through 2 and 3. It says this. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is happening to them? They're seeing the people of God being defeated and overtaken. The northern kingdom has been captured by Assyria. But yet they're the people of God, okay? Like you said, that those that come against will be cursed, but yet they're winning, 
So can God really be God? Can his word really be true? Can we really be his people? We see in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, maybe you've heard this called the Mosaic promise or covenant. It says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So they're asking, can God really be who he says he is? Can he be a good God, our God, a sovereign God over all the earth, over all kingdoms? And yet we're seeing these enemies of God overtake his people. Can we be who he said we are? He said we are his people. Does he not love his people? Does he not care for his people? Is he not supposed to protect us? What questions do you and I ask today? How can God be loving with all the evil in the world? How long must we endure? What are your questions? Last week, we set the stage of this new theme. You know, the the previous 39 chapters were judgment. That's what it was. Chapter 40 marks a transition to restoration and hope, and redemption. Last week, we, like I said, we set the stage of the switch in theme as we came to these great words of comfort in verses 1 and 2. So here we are. So before we get to our verses today, I want to ask a few questions. I want to ask this question. What is your great need? What is your great need that cries out for comfort? What is your great need that cries out for comfort? cries out for deliverance. Think on that for a second. Is it the need for enough money to make you feel secure? To make you feel valid? To make you feel successful? Is it the need for enough relationships to make you feel loved or important? Is it the realization that nothing of this earth truly satisfies, and if it doesn't, what then? Is it the worry that when all is said and done, you possibly haven't done enough to make God love and accept you? Is it death? It's appointed to every man to die. We don't think about it. Some do. Is it the evil in the world, just that you see it all around and it just weighs on you? Is it the evil in yourself? You know your secret places. You know what nobody else knows. You see what nobody else sees. Is that what troubles you the most? Is that what makes you cry out for comfort the most? We all have these needs. They all are rooted in the same thing, but they are expressed a little differently. So what is that need for you? So if we saw last week a promise of great comfort, this week we see how this great comfort is possible. It's one thing just to say, comfort, comfort to you. Have great comfort. Great comfort is coming. We like that message. We, we hug that. We're like, yes, we hold it tight. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how? How? 
How is it possible that these wayward, rebellious people can know comfort when the judgment that has been prophesied hasn't even happened yet? They're still waiting on that. How can they know comfort? That is our question today. So let's get to our text. Isaiah 43 through 5 is what we're going to look at today. <clears throat> so here we go. Continuing from last week, says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, so today, as we work through this text, we're going to first look at our understanding in reference to how the people of the time, how Isaiah's audience of the time would have heard this, how it would have spoken to them, how it would have encouraged and challenged them, what the truth, what the thrust would have been for them, and then we'll look at what it is for us today. They're not really separate. They're one and the same, but we're going to do it that way just for some clarity to understand the intent of Isaiah and the reception of the people so the people of Israel were under great judgment, as we've already talked about, and it's a need, and they are in need of comfort. What was their sin? Some of you know, some of you don't know. So just quickly, in broad strokes, the sin of the people of Israel is that they, re that they repeatedly put their trust in themselves and in earthly things and kings. This started way back in the day when they were supposed to be a people ruled by God and they looked around them and they saw the other kingdoms that had earthly kings, men as kings, and they said, you know what, we want, we want that. That's better than what you've given us and we want that. We want an earthly king. And they cried out and they cried out and they cried out and God tried to correct them through Samuel and finally he said, okay, I'll give you what you want. Gave him Saul. And that was just the beginning of the decline. So first they said we want an earthly king, and then we see it most recently here in this example that they are most that they see that in chapter 39, Hezekiah, the king of the time, which was a good, righteous king, he was a good king for all intents and purposes, but yet when the Babylonians sent an envoy, he got prideful and he started to put his trust in what they had accrued, and he said, Hey, let me show you all that we have. He showed them all their riches. It said all that he had, he left nothing unseen. And Isaiah went to him, he says, what did you show him? He said, I showed him everything. And it wasn't that he was bragging on God. He was, he was bragging on himself. He was bragging on their own kingdom. He was bragging on things that he didn't even do. He was bragging on things that were established by kings before him. So once again, he had placed his trust in earthly things. His security was in what he had. And he was showing the Babylonians in, hope, in hopes to earn favor from them because it is crazy, like a little free caveat, like he had just went through this great exhibition of faith with the, when they were under attack from the king of Assyria. And he has submitted all things to God, and he went to Isaiah, and they submitted all things to God, and God delivered them. That had just happened, but now immediately, the next thing we read about is him turning to placing his trust in earthly things. So, what we see at the time over and over again in the people of Israel is that they knew that trusting God was good, but they looked at it as a one-time, as-needed basis to get them out of trouble, not a constant way of life, an expression of who they are as his people and him being their God. So they heard their great judgment. They knew that there was a time coming when they would be exiled from their land that was supposed to be their promise, and they were exiled, and they were made subject to the Babylonians. They knew that was coming, and they needed comfort. 
So God, in his grace, although his judgment had to be fulfilled, he also turns to speak the grace and hope. So that's where we come into Isaiah 40. The flow of these verses shows that God knows the hearts of man. Have you ever heard it said the hearts of man are idol factories? Our hearts, left to themselves, will always create an idol of something. We will always turn. Left without casting our devotion to God, we will always create an idol of self, an idol of success, an idol of things, an idol of relation. All these things we just listed. The second half of verse 2 from last week could give room for the creation of some idolatrous acts. In some way, there's room to think that there's deliverance in some human experience or institution. So quickly, let's just recap from last week, Isaiah 41 and 2. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Great words, thankful words, words that they were crying out for. And it says, And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And so just to kind of quickly clarify what I'm talking about here, when we read that, it can be understood that their restoration and redemption comes once they've paid their penance, once they've done their sentence, once they've done their due time. But what we're being pointed to here is that their restoration and redemption cannot be attained by any earthly faculty, any earthly effort, anything that happens of man. What we're seeing is that it is secured and achieved by something totally outside themselves, foreshadowing someone totally outside themselves. How How often do we do that? How often do we say that, okay, God is responsible for our redemption and restoration and our good standing and our love and our knowing fulfillment and hope and love and yet set out to achieve it with our hands, set out to control it with our choices. How often do we do that? We give God the nod and then set out and say, okay, yeah, thank you, God, but I got this. I'll, I'll make sure that it happens. You know, you're my backup. I'll make sure that it happens. How often? How often do we say that we are in need of comfort that only God can bring and then set out to make our own comfort? How often do we say that we are in need of restoration that comes only from God and then set out to control? How often do we we say that we need security and then set out to earn and develop and make our own safe place? Our hearts are idle factories. Nothing new. And sadly, it's still here. But there's comfort. There's comfort. So what is it that secures that great promise of comfort? And I've been prayerfully wrestling with this text all week, really before this week, and what is meant by prepare the way of the Lord. You know, what does that mean, and what is the call that it leaves us with? What is our responsibility? What's our response supposed to be? And I've just been wrestling with it, because, and this is because I've always associated this, and first connected this, this, this statement, prepare the way of the Lord, to, to John the Baptist and his usage of this text in Luke that we'll come to in a little bit. But I've always kind of been left with and felt that the driving force has meant that we are to do something. We are actively to prepare the way for the Lord. I woke up last night at 2.45, call it jet lag, call it the Lord, I don't know, but it was beneficial one way or the other. But I woke up at 2.45 and I ended up praying and thinking through this verse all night, literally just laying there in my bed just over and over again, just, just cycling through this and praying through it and asking the Lord, okay, like, what does it mean? And he just keeps kind of saying, keep, keep, keep asking. You know, it says, 
the voice, a voice cries. There's a reason we don't know who that voice is, why it doesn't tell us who that voice is. It's because the message far outweighs the messenger. So I want us to do this. I want us to read this from this perspective. I want us to look at it like this. Instead of like focusing on the voice, focus on that this voice is a heralding call. It's the one who goes out before royalty, the one who goes out before the king, and he cries out. And so now he's crying out. He's making an announcement. And it says, a voice cries in the wilderness. This is his heralding call. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So the most important thing about this message is not what it is to prepare the way, but the fact that a conquering king is coming. That is what is most important. That is the promise of prepare the way. You see, the context of what these people would have associated this with, it was a known thing when a conquering king of a people were touring, they would send out word that they were coming, and the people were meant to, to sure up the roads. you got to think, this was old times. The, the, roads were, the, the trade roads were rustic. There were ruts, and there were valleys, and there were, there were rocks and crags. And so they would go, and they would try to, as best they could, smooth out the roads because the king was coming to make his path clear. So what we see here is a proclamation that a victorious king is coming for his people. He said, yes, you will be exiled. You will face judgment, but your judgment is not eternal. There is a victorious king who will secure, and only he can secure your restoration. Your restoration. Only he can secure your redemption. So that is what the most important thing is. Like, if there's nothing else you walk away from, hear the promise of the coming king to these people. Hear how that liberated them in the moment when they were still awaiting the, the fall of the hammer. Yet this spoke life and hope to them because of the promise of the coming king. He said he's coming. He's coming because victory is secured in him. Your deliverance is in him and him alone. Even in the old covenant, the restoration, the restoration and redemption of the people was solely secured by another. And I say that because if you're familiar with the new covenant, we, we, what's in your mind right now is Jesus. He alone is your atoning sacrifice. But even there, we see that the people of God, the people of Israel could not be restored by anything that they did, by any sentence that they went through, but only by the deliverance of a coming king. It is God himself that delivered them from under the bondage of the Babylonians a couple hundred years in the future through the conquering of a pagan unknown king at the time in Cyrus. No one ever heard of his kingdom. No one ever heard of him. But God used him to come and conquer Babylon and liberate the people of Israel. He didn't even love God. But God showed his sovereignty, showed his glory over him. They were once again being called back to placing all of their trust in God and not just to get them out of trouble, but as a way of life. It's a posture of the heart. And we see in verse 5, we see that God seals this promise in his own authority, in his own being, in his own character. There is no authority greater than he is alone. We see this. It says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
It's one of the greatest themes carried all throughout Isaiah is the necessity for the glory of God to be made known through his people to all the earth. When the glory of the Lord is revealed in full, it cannot be denied. When the glory of the Lord is revealed in full, it is all is finished. All of his work is done. When it says that the mouth of the Lord has spoken, is saying that all that is promised to be done will be done by the very character, authority, and hand of God. God himself guarantees it. And is there any greater guarantee? If you believe that God is the creator of the universe, that he is sovereign over all of life and death, that he is good, that he is worthy, is there any greater guarantee of his work than his own word? So that phrase, the mouth of the Lord has all of the force of every bit of who God is and his promise to carry out what he says he will. So our greatest comfort, our greatest comfort is not in what we do or even what earthly leaders do, whether spiritual leaders or not, but in what is done and accomplished by our sovereign good God. Let us not forget how relevant this text is to you and me. You see, the people of Israel were not only awaiting this hope, like I already said, they were also living in the judgment, as well as waiting for the judgment to be carried out in their exile. We live in this same tension today. We live in a fallen world. We are bound up in fallen flesh, even if our souls are redeemed. And in that flesh, we continue to experience judgment as well as look to a day where final judgment will be exacted. In the final judgment, the day that Christ returns, in that day, those who have called on Christ, whose name is in the book of life, their final judgment will be Full restoration, no more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more sin. Those who have continued to place their trust in themselves and never surrender their lives to the understanding, to the need for a Savior, and that Savior being Jesus, the one Messiah, their final judgment will be one of final annihilation, final separation from God. So there's a word of hope and a word of woe, but we live in that same tension so here we are in the Advent season. And this is a word that is so interesting as I sit here and think. And, and like, I, I'm excited about the message because it's a word of comfort, but yet I feel the weight of it. And I know this, like, oh, gosh, you know, it's like on you. But that's good because when it's on you, then hopefully you feel the lift when all of a sudden the truth of Jesus washes over you, penetrates your heart and your mind, changes the way you see. So we are in the Advent season where we are, again, thinking about Christmas Day, what we are remembering and celebrating, and the coming of the Messiah. For these people, the coming of the King that has come to restore His people, and Jesus coming into this earth was the risen and exalted King. And yet there's a second coming, like we were just talking about, when sin and death is defeated once and for all. For those who are in Christ, there is victory in the midst of all that is around us. So it is in that understanding that we wrap up today, looking at the thrust of this message for us, for you, for me. 
For this, we look to a text we referred to a minute ago. We look to John the Baptist and his usage of this text in Luke 3. So you can go ahead and turn to Luke 3 if you like. Go ahead. And if you have a way to keep a marker in Isaiah, do that. But it's also on the screens. I'll give you a second to turn there. I get a sip of water. Okay, so Luke 3, we're going to look at a few, quite a few verses, but we're going to start in verse 3. And this is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the predecessor of Jesus, and he's out there preaching, proclaiming, doing his thing. And it says this, starting in verse 3, we're going to read through 6 on this one. But before we do that, I want to tell you there are three responses, three responses that we should see in our lives if we believe there is an absolute deliverance coming, that we are secured in in Jesus now, and it's going to be complete when he returns. Okay, so here we go. Luke 3, we're going to start in 3, look through uh, verses 3 through 6. And this is John the Baptist speaking. says, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So the first response, the first posture is one of repentance. We must repent. If, if, we are, if we are waiting the, the returning of our king to bring full restoration and redemption of his people, what it is to prepare the way to be ready is to repent. Is there any greater need? Says, Matthew says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So if you go through all this life trying to do good, trying to do right, trying to make the right choices, be kind to people, make, you know, again, come in on the behalf of, but yet you have not repented. You have not repented of placing your trust in yourself or in the things of this world, but instead in the sovereign God given in Jesus. If you haven't repented, what good has all that effort done? Not a bit. So we first must be a people who have repented. Repented of our own idolatry of self in this world. Repented of our own efforts to try to control and attain with our own hands. As opposed, instead of understanding that it is only in Christ. There is one name under heaven by which you must be saved. That is Jesus. Repent. So we must first Repent. And do you believe that God, as we said earlier, do you believe that God is a sovereign, good, and holy God? If your answer is yes to that, your only natural response, if you really believe that, has to be repentance. If your answer is no or I don't know, I invite you to lean into that understanding. Start looking at the world in that way and looking at his word in that way and see what happens. All right, so the first thing, we must be a people who have repented. So let's continue looking at 
this discourse from John, verses 7 through 14. It says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And this is what it is to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It says, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever that, whoever, <clears throat> excuse me, whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. So to pull from the text, I would say our second response is to bear fruits in keeping with, keeping with repentance. I would say live ready. If you know the king is coming, live as though it matters that he's coming. You're a conquering, liberating king. Live in a way that pleases that king. You're a good, loving king who gave himself. We're talking about our God, our holy God and Jesus right now, not just this king that God used back in the day. He gave all of himself. The one who demanded justice became subject to his own just nature by sending Jesus, by taking on flesh and living and dying so that you could have hope in life, so that you could know salvation. So live ready. Live in a way that keeps with repentance. He gave you pictures. Again, this is not the, the end-all, be-all list, but this is a posture of how we should live. Live out your new identity in Christ. Live out who you are. Your good works, it says bear good fruit, that is it's only good because it comes from God. But you can do the same thing and it'd be good and bad if it has the wrong motive, the wrong reason. So, repent and live ready, keeping in line, keeping in with repentance. So then we come to the last part here, verses 15 through 17. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's talking about Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He has a winnowing fork, he has a winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So lastly, the third response, our third posture would be that we live as if this is not all there is. Think about all those questions that we asked earlier, the things that cause us to cry for comfort, the things that we place our trust in. Are they not exposed as temporal? What happens to any of those things when your breath on this earth ceases? They're wiped away. They've done you no good in view of eternity. Your achievements, your possessions, the amount of relationships you have, the amount of accolade and position that you have. What happens to all those things on the last day? 
What happens to all those things on the final judgment? John baptizes with water, but Jesus with fire and spirit. The work of Jesus is one of the eternal. So live as if this is not all there is. You cannot get there unless you repented. You cannot get there if you repented and you are living in a way keeping with that repentance because you are fundamentally changed. You are made new. The old is gone. The new has come. You have a new name. You have a new identity. And that new name is written in the book of life that records your secure place for eternity in the presence of God, in relationship with Him. Is there any greater comfort than that? Is there any greater comfort? Is it great to not only be free then, but to be free now? That's the promise. So Jesus has come, the Messiah has come, and He's coming again on a right horse, on a white horse is our victorious King. This is what we're waiting on. In the present, those who are in Christ are victorious and are already made free. Though we suffer for a little while, we will be free for all of eternity. Do not put your faith in things that time and moths destroy. Repent if you need to. There is freedom. Live out your new identity as you live out keeping with that repentance and live as if this life is not all that there is. Because the way has been prepared for the coming king, and Jesus will return. That is my comfort. That is your comfort. So we're going to close reading these five verses from Isaiah 40 one more time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we end each message with a time of prayer. It's time of corporate prayer, time of praying together. For some you will pray out loud. For some you will pray in silence. For some you will just listen. And in this time, we just want to pray in response to this truth that we have heard today, whether it's a prayer of, of coming and praying on behalf of, interceding on behalf of a need that you know of, whether it's a prayer of personal confession, whether it's a prayer of rejoicing and exaltation. As the Lord has worked in you, open your heart and your mind to his transforming truth. Pray now, let us stand in agreement, and then we'll continue with the time of communion in just a little bit. So I'll, I'll open us up in prayer, and then you can follow, and then I'll come up in a little bit and lead us in communion. So God, I'm so thankful for your great promise of comfort. First, as we read of it for the people of Israel, Lord, that though they faced a judgment for their sin, Lord, your grace was sufficient, and even then was active. And Lord, even, even then, their sole promise of deliverance and redemption was found in you. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for Jesus. Lord, that just as the people of Israel were prone to, I am prone to idolatry. I am prone to place my trust in the things that I can hold, the things that I can work towards, the things that I can affect.
But I, Lord, I thank you that in Jesus I am shown, Lord, that only in his atoning sacrifice, only in his coming on behalf of us, your people, Lord, can we, can I know salvation and hope and purpose, Lord, for this life and for eternity. God, I pray that you would just not, not allow me to grow dull, God, not allow me to, to slumber in this world, but to, Lord, to, to, to live with, with a tender heart that is, that is bare to your work and your word, God. I pray for us as a people in this room and the people that aren't in this room that are part of, of this people and this time and this place, Lord, that we would be a people that are unified in the freedom that is in Christ upon repentance and the life that is in Christ for your glory. God, let us see there's nothing greater than your glory being made known in this world and that you have made it, that you desire to use us for that work. And that is freedom, and that is purpose. So God, as we continue through this Christmas season, every time we think of Christmas Day or any time we do the work of Christmas shopping or decorating or whatever it may be, let us be reminded of the coming King. Let us be reminded of the deliverance of the Messiah. Let us be reminded that this that we live and breathe right now is not all that there is and that our lives would be a reflection of who we are in you and these promises being true. So God, I love you. I thank you in Jesus' name.